Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Doing? Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How are you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey there. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi. Conversations with storytellers. Wisdom. Folk and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. I wanted to capture their thoughts, their ideas, and maybe ideals in their own voices. I didn't want a traditional interview, but a conversation with these folks. Some will tell us their favourite stories. Others will share their thoughts on our profession. Some will give us glimpses of their lives and the lives of those around them who their mentors and inspirations were or are. All of them share gems of wisdom. Welcome to Conversations with Storytelling. I first met Lauren Neamey years ago, and over the years I've got to know him a bit better and a bit better and a bit better. He is a fascinating guy. He's done an awful lot of work in his life. He's been a project manager for a housing redevelopment agency, worked for an arts commission. He was executive director of a 4.6 million community neighbourhood revitalisation plan, worked in a children's home society and family services as public policy manager and public policy consultant. He was also executive director of the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theatre, as well as one of the founding members of the Northland Storytelling Network. And throughout most, he has been, if not all, he has been a storyteller. This is the second time I have interviewed Lauren. Uh, the first time it didn't work out so well, and I also discovered on returning home that there were some issues with this recording as well. So it's a little shorter than I would have liked it. Apologies to Lauren and also you, the listener, for that. I hope you enjoy what I did capture. Lauren Neamey. So. And you, you're very much of an activist as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, so I started off first as a, uh, well, the story is that, you know, in, in 1967, I, w I went down to Chicago, Illinois uh, for what was supposed to be uh, philosophical training, right? Okay. Um, Martin Buber and and Reinhold Niebuhr, right? It was all kind of a Protestant and Jewish sort of forward thinking, uh, but it came with a big heaping helping of <laughs> of classic community organizing training. Saul Alinsky, right? So Barack Obama and I have the same sort of building blocks for oh, organizing, okay. right? Saul Alinsky. So um, and out of that training, I. Uh, because it was the late 60s, you know, Vietnam and the draft issues were particularly, uh, they came to the fore. And so I began organizing around that. And from there, from organizing around draft issues and anti-war issues, I went to working with juvenile justice offenders. And in, in working with juvenile justice offenders, story was very functional uh, with them. I mean, the traditional school system didn't function for them, or they didn't function for the school system. But stories would engage them in terms of um, both as metaphors and as examples, but also in terms of getting them to tell their own stories to move them from, from kind of a, 
unconsciousness to a, to being oh what is this decision I'm making and why does it matter? Um, so was this a lot of personal narrative that you were working with the kids? Um, the it was a mix with the kids. It was a mix of a. Um, folk tales, uh, imaginary tales, uh, you know, projection, you know, if you were in such and such a circumstance, tell me the story, what you would do, right? Um, and then there was also some personal narrative. Well, why was it that you stole that car on your 16th birthday, right. you know, right? You know, because it was there. Well, really? The car was there and what? You thought it was a birthday present? Tell me about that ride, yeah. you know. Right, and to getting around, getting a, a kid around to the point where he finally says, you know, it was my 16th birthday, I wanted to give myself a present. It was a nice looking car, so I took it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, in these, in these days, that would probably be a, some variation on narrative therapy, but, you know. Well, yeah, but it's, that's, that's the nature of the beast when you're in that kind of situation. Right. And I, you know, I think that's, that's very important that, that in those situations that, personal narrative is, is used because it's it's, right. it's powerful and it's very personal and you can see yourself because you're talking about yourself right right, right. and from and you know and from you know from those narratives which are the narratives of the everyday you can begin to see kind of how you operate in terms of decision making or moral values or how you operate in terms of political values and so you can begin to then you can then raise questions with people in terms of is this how you want to live is what is the consequence of this what is the you know what are the alternatives what 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 are your fears what are your dreams you know how do we move from your fears to your dreams you know and and from working with juvenile justice offenders i, I you know i just you just scale up to working with neighborhoods and with immigrant groups and people of color it's like okay when we're not talking about you by yourself, but you as a neighborhood or you as a community, you know, well, what are your fears? What are your dreams? How do you move from your fears to your dreams? You know, what would make a difference in the life of this community? What would make this a better place? Right. So. Right. And what what drew you to story? Was it something that just came naturally to you, or was it something that you saw somebody else using and you well, modeled it? Or? Um, at the beginning, I think I actually think it was more sort of a functional tool. Um, but in 1978, when I declared myself a storyteller, okay. right? So I'd already done 10 years of organizing work at that point. So in 78, when I declared myself a storyteller, I recognized that there was something more to it. And that was at the point at which I began to consciously and very systematically, you know, read and explore and um, um, recognize in what ways I had been prepared for it. And, and I, from from seventy eight through uh, the end of eighty three, I had a series of experiences which demonstrated in the most visceral way possible that storytelling was the right choice. Wow! <laughs> you, could you share one of those? Or would you so well, th they included. Um, they included. I, in nineteen seventy nine, I went to a thing called the Mythos Conference in in St. Paul, and at that conference. Uh, Ken Fight was there, who, was, who, when I first met him in, in the 60s, was a Jesuit in Milwaukee working on housing issues. And by 1969, he had been through Ringling Brothers Clown School and was now a storyteller, or as he said, a holy fool. And he was, oh, in the most profound sense of that word. Uh, Ruvain Gold was there. Ruvain Gold was a Hasidic storyteller from Chicago who I had worked with previously. And, you know, um, uh, 
so he was there. Um, Gioia Timpanelli was at that conference. Uh, um, a number of, you know, Diane Wolkstein was at that conference. Right. Diane Wolkstein and I had our first argument at that conference. Oh, really? Which was, yeah, which was fun. Um, sitting next to me in one of the workshops was this, this fifth-generation farmer uh, from southern Minnesota by the name of Michael Cotter. And so I heard him tell his first public story, you know, and, uh, and heard Joya, uh, Joya Timpanelli say to him, you know, you have a gift for this, right? So, you know, and that began 32 years of our friendship, you know, um, and his telling all kinds of stories, rooted in the land, rooted in farming, rooted in, you know, I mean, all of his stories were personal stories, but on a profoundly metaphoric level. Right. Because it was all he knew. Um, right. So, so there was that experience. Mm -hmm. In 1980, 81, I was the humanities scholar in residence in northeastern Minnesota in the Arrowhead region, which meant I had a, a the Minnesota Humanities Commission paid me for a year to sit in bars and cafes and church basements and do oral histories, collect stories, photograph the culture, comment in public ways on the transition of northern Minnesota from being largely industrial, mining, lumbering, fishing, to being largely tourist-driven as the economic basis of the culture. Right. And so, uh, you know, so I collect stories. I mean, realistically, it's like the, the new book of ghost stories I just came out with, What Haunts Us. Mm -hmm. The first three stories in that book are collected ghost stories, right, from that time period. Oh, wow. You know, stories people actually told me. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, there we are. Um, you know, and then, of course, in 1983, um, I worked with In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mass Theater on the Circle of Water Circus. Okay. The Circle of Water Circus, right? It, the history of the Mississippi River from the beginning of time to the present moment done as a circus pageant involving European circus style and puppetry. Right? And that, that trip, the actual tour was six months, 23 cities, 42 people going down the Mississippi River, including Kevin Kling. And at every point on the river as we were going along, if I could drag Kevin to meet a local storyteller who I knew or into a storytelling situation, I'd say, Kevin, pay attention, Kevin, pay attention, <laughs> right? And by the end of the trip, he was as much of a storyteller as I was, so. That's so neat. So, um, and out of that, and out of that trip, you know, the, the stories, that trip was an example of the fact of it the reality of it was so unbelievable and mm -hmm. so surrealistic that you know, when I tell stories from that, I have to add fiction to have it make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so by time, by time that sequence from 78 through 83 is done, mm -hmm. you know, I've got a huge bank of stories, a wide range of stories. I'm telling folklore, I'm telling you know, religious teaching stories, I'm telling historical material, I'm telling personal stories, I'm telling, you know, convenient fictions, <laughs> I'm telling humor, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, it was my graduate school, you know, of, of, of the world. <laughs> right. You also met Elizabeth Ellis. Right. The, I, met, I met Elizabeth Ellis. Yeah, we can't quite figure it out. It was either somewhere, in, somewhere around 1980, right, when she and Gail Ross were together as the 
as the two moon storytellers at that point. Mm. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth and I met, and we began we began doing workshops and performing soon after that in you know various times. And you put a so book together with her. We put a book together based on our workshop work. Yeah, inviting the wolf in. Yeah, um, which it's a really good book. Well, it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, I will I will say that um, inviting the wolf in still and in, in many ways is more resonant now than when we wrote it, right. in terms of you know. How do you hear stories that are hard to hear, and how do you tell stories that are hard to tell, and why they are valuable and necessary? And these are these are personal narratives, largely, well, not, yeah, largely yeah. personal narratives, but they don't have to be. They can be historical stories. Right. They can be folk tales. Right. I mean, if you look at the folk tales, there's plenty of really grim. Oh, there are. Not even including the Brothers Grimm material, right. but there's plenty of dark, dark folk tales that really, in order to tell them and in order to hear them, you need to have an understanding of why these difficult stories are valuable. Right. You know, so. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah. So do, do, you, do you still tell a lot of folk tales? Um, I, I'm telling more now than I, than I used to. Really? I'm going back to a lot of the folk tales and the traditional stories. But in the process of coming back to them, I'm telling them in different kinds of ways. You know, when I tell... Uh, when I tell um, Hansel and Gretel, you know, it's not the Brothers Grimm version, although it references the Brothers Grimm version. Mm -hmm. But when I tell Hansel and Gretel, it really is more about um, the issue of, well, I can tell it several different ways. One way I tell it is about what, is the, what does it mean to be abandoned and to find a mother, even if it, the mother is the wrong mother, you know, the bad surrogate. Mm -hmm. I can tell it as a story in which um, about decision making, about when is that moment where you decide where your loyalty lies? Right. Yeah. Right. I can tell it. I can. You know, I can tell it as a, and in many ways, I love that version of the story because in that version of the story, I begin with and I end with the oven. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. Because that's that is the moment of decision for yeah for you know for Gretel you know. There is the oven. There is that beautiful beehive of brick with the fire inside. The fire roaring and saying, feed me. I will transform you. Right. <laughs> Whoa. You know, and once, and once someone is in the oven, you know, then we have that larger historic metaphor, right? The smoke rises from the oven over the woods through the trees and it goes to the village and people sniff and say what is that smell it is the smell of trouble it is the smell of death it is the smell of denial for we smell nothing <laughs> wow so how long does it take you to when you're working with these stories i mean how long did it take you to work with that story to come up with that um with that image yeah with that image and that vocabulary yeah hard to tell. I mean, I wind up telling stories over and over again, and every time I tell them, I tell them in little variations. Mm -hmm. You know, so... But I've been telling versions of Hansel and Gretel now for for probably 20 years, yeah. and I tell it two, three times a year, maybe. Right. You know, and with different audiences, I sort of choose what, the, which part I want to focus on. Right. You because know. different audiences yeah. have different needs and all that. Right. Kind of and then once once I decide sort of where we are, then it's just commit to it. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, that's what Bill was saying. Right, right. that that was what commit. Bill was. Yeah. You commit to it, right? Yeah, totally commit to it. 
So you, I want to talk about two chairs. Um, okay. Did you did you resurrect that, or is it still on? These days, these days, two chairs is um, people ask me to do it as a special. Okay. And so I'll do it. I'll do it occasionally, but I'm not producing it as an ongoing series right. at this point. So you could, I did 25 years of it as an ongoing series. You know, it was 25 years you did that. For? Yeah, I had no idea it was running for so long. Oh yeah, I started in like '91 or '92, and then you know, just I just stopped in 2016 doing it as a regular series. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. yeah. I so, you know, 136. That's a lot. You know, that's a lot. Of, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. But the concept of two chairs telling mm -hmm. is so beautiful. Especially when people again commit to it, right? So here's the origin of two chairs telling. Okay. So in 1984, I'm in. I'm at the Toronto Festival Storytelling Festival, and there I'm. I'm staying at Dan. I'm at Dan Yashinsky's. I'm not sure if I was staying there that time. I, I'm at Dan Yashinsky's kitchen, and there's like five or other six other storytellers there, including a, a, a Hungarian poet whose name I don't remember, but I remember what he said, which was was uh, the Germans had me in jail, and when the Russians came, they let me out, and a week later, they put me back in the same cell. <laughs> Which I thought, there was a statement about poetry, right? Yeah. But, so we're sitting around the table, and we've got a bottle of whiskey, and someone says, oh, did you ever hear the story about, and they told us a little story, and then someone else says, oh, I know a variation on that story, and someone else says, that story reminds me of. And we basically told stories the five of us all night long and drinking and talking and drinking and talking and talking about the meaning of stories as we went until we got to like six in the morning at which point Dan Jashinsky says uh, you know we got to go to work in two hours and someone said well you know it's too late for sleep let's go get breakfast <laughs> 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 but that experience yeah. of people sitting and just simply not dealing with their own repertoire Right. Not telling what I tell on stage, but telling those things that I, are puzzling to me or wonderful to me and, and are suggested by what you tell. That's what I wanted to present to an audience. Right. I wanted to say, okay, I want you to be able to witness this. So if I have two tellers <coughs> on stage and I give, them, I give them the space to just go back and forth, to listen to each other and to respond to each other, what happens? And in the best of all instances, what, you ha what happens is you get incredible stories and an incredible kind of conversation. In the worst of all instances, you get a very interesting train wreck. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you have many train wrecks? I had two or three over the course. I mean, and that's interesting to me that over the course of 25 years, I only, ha I only had a few train wrecks. One of them, one of them was I had a guy who was a, uh, a, uh, a food reviewer, a restaurant reviewer for the Star Tribune newspaper who also had a, a degree in philosophy uh -huh. and I had him paired with a with a woman storyteller who who specialized in telling stories about the sensual right and he she told her first story and he got so intimidated by her he kind of forgot how to speak really and the at some point, it was so painful that at some point the audience were shouting questions to him. They were trying to prompt him into saying something. Because this is an audience that you had developed and... and right, this yeah. is an audience who came to two chairs regularly, right? right. right? You know, you know, and it was kind of like, 
oh, let's try to help him, you know. And he would stumble from one story to another. But every time she responded, she was so beautiful in her language. And so even in a casual way, she had a sensuality to her words that he just was going, you know, just open-mouthed and... Just choking. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was. I think he was in love. But you know, you 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 can never say that. Oh, I've fallen in love right on stage. Yeah, right. <laughs> we can, but only if there's a television camera there to film it. When they're going to drop drop down on one knee and uh, <coughs> and uh, put a ring there. Um, I want to talk about your your 2002 book, the new book of plots. Right. Where you took traditional stories and set them in a modern setting. Um, so the quote from Amazon is, the confusing black forest of the Brothers Grimm become the crowded shopping mall. Rapunzel's mother sought a more familiar drug than the pain-killing herbs of a witch's garden. And um, it, it, it's, it's a really good book. Well, good, it, thanks. It, it's, you know, both of your books that I've, I've read have, have, you know really so, gave me pause to think. Okay, so actually, and Ted Parkhurst, who, who published uh, the plot book, right. I just delivered to him a, a manuscript for a companion to the plot book. Oh, really? That looks, yeah, that the new one will look at um, the issue of point of view, present tense, past tense, first person, second person, third person, and then it's also looking at the emotional arc of stories. How, what is the arc of the narr the narr uh, the character in the story? What is the arc of the narrator? What is the arc of the audience? And in that book, uh, with exception of a couple of personal stories where I use as examples, all of the other examples I'm using are drawn from and variations on Little Red Riding Hood. Nice. <laughs> so there's like there's probably sixteen or eighteen Little Red Riding Hood snippets there from wow. di different different present tense past tense first yeah. person second person third person right so so how did you come up with the idea of that book was this something that you used and you thought that other people should be using a technique that you well were using you know at teaching storytelling over the years i've i recognize that the elements that i that i want to teach people the elements of you know the, the structure of plot is people always want to know well, what can i do there but plot by itself is insufficient. Mm -hmm. uh, the choices around who's telling the story, and the choice of of um, how do we how do we take care of the you know uh, both the the audience and the narrator, um, you know how do we acknowledge what that that emotional relationship that that we have to the story? Those elements are always always there and need to be dealt with as well. So. The concept is is that we've got to have these two books as sort of um, as a pairing, you know, to give you enough an, a wider set of tools to work with. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the point of view can, you know, when you change the point of view of the narrator, the story can, can become completely right. different. Right. I mean, the core of it's still the same. Right. And, and you know, yeah. I mean, when you tell Little Red Riding Hood from the third point, third person point of view. In certain ways, the failure of logic that's built into that story becomes readily obvious. Right. Right. But when you tell Little Red Riding Hood from the first person point of view, regardless of whether it's Red or her mother or the grandmother or the wolf or the woodsman, right. you know, it becomes something much, much more complicated and much more 
human. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, I started the uh, the story of Little Red Riding Hood. I, I was working with these high schoolers, and those to cut a long story short, they were misunderstanding what I was saying. I wasn't explaining it properly, apparently, and um, they didn't think that you could start a story in the middle or start the story at the end and then come back round. And they were like, "Well, how do you do that?" And so I had one of the kids come up, and I was trying to explain it to. Them. They weren't getting it, and I was mm-hmm. like, "Well, that wouldn't happen." Um, because Little Red Riding Hood and Grandmother haven't spoken yet. They haven't met each other yet, so they don't know that yet. Unless they were talking inside the wolf, the belly, the belly of the wolf. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, let's try that, you know. Mm-hmm. And we, we tried that. And when you have this little old lady inside this dark environment, the sudden there's smells and it's slushy, and then this other person enters that same environment... And it's like, oh, is that you, Granny? You know, mm-hmm. like, what's happening? You know, and then you have that conversation. It, it puts a really different spin on it, and it oh, does yeah. become way more human, right? Than oh, Granny's sick, run through the forest, you know, and mm-hmm. the wolf's talking and all the rest of it, you know, right. because all that's negated, kind of thing, because right. you're already in the belly of the wolf. Yeah, yeah, and and the, one of the, one of the reasons I, I I chose Little Red Riding Hood as a as an example. In the plot book, I use Jack and the Beanstalk because that one, you know, it, all you go through all the variations of plot, you know, it it can always it's always essentially the same story, but it it it, it has very different feelings and very different looks. But Little Red Riding Hood, in and of itself, you know, it historically has been such a such an oddly metaphoric story. You know, the earliest version, the wolf eats her. Period. End of story. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, well, what is that story? I mean, is you know a simple cautionary story, or is it just a horror story? You know, in this yeah, in right. the second version, you know, the wolf suddenly takes on the role of you know the wolf is a metaphor for for males, right? And so he deflowers her, right. you know, and uh, and then by by her own cunning, she has to save herself. Um, you know, suddenly it's a very powerful cautionary tale, you know. And then in the third, but that's a little too raw for the Brothers Grimm. So mm-hmm. you know, so for the Brothers Grimm, we have to introduce you know the external savior, the woodsman. Right. You know, so it's like, you know, well, okay, we're going to bring someone into you know the DSX machina here. Yes. <laughs> snip, snip. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is true. <coughs> do you do you think there's there's a great power in folk and fairy tales that you can't get with personal narrative? Um, the answer is yes and no. Okay. Uh, the, uh, and the no comes from there is a great power in personal narrative when it yes. is done well, and when it is about something that matters. When it is when the when it is about something which is at stake. Um, in folk and fairy tales. The answer is yes again, but for the same reasons. When it's about something that matters, and when it, and when the metaphors are speaking to very fundamental issues, um, where there's something at stake, there are plenty of folk and fairy tales that are you know are so light of that if they, if they stood up, the breeze would knock them over. You know, um, and they can also be fun, right? And they can yeah. also be fun. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know? And unfortunately. Uh, you know, I am of the opinion that over the years, Disney and mm-hmm. and the the commodification of the princess, the commodification of uh, cute animals, you know, has has made what were has made a number of tales which have 
much more valuable and darker underpinnings, you know, so light as to uh, as to dilute the power of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I found that a lot. And you know, a lot of the picture books these days, they, you know, water them down, homogenize them, strip them of any kind of culture until they just—it's just a story, and there's there's no power to it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's just a, I don't know, a way to make money safely, I guess. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what's been the most rewarding work that you've done? In many ways. Um I mean, the most rewarding work I've done has actually been the teaching of stories to uh, or coaching people in a wide variety of contexts, uh, you know. Um, so, in that sense, my, uh, my obligation is to pass on, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, I, I never think about my, as Bill said, I never think about myself as a master storyteller, but I do think of myself as having an obligation to, to say to people, okay, if you want to choose this, if you want to choose to tell stories, you know, how do you do it well? How do we, how do we make your story be the, 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 the where's the gold inside the frame, um, you know, that you're working with, that you've chosen? The second most rewarding instance, though, has been um, when I uh, sort of the performance of some of the of the more longer personal stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like like my story, um, Bad Brother, you know, which is uh, which is about my experiences in the religious life, but is also about my experiences being part of the uh, on the periphery of the trial of the Milwaukee Fourteen, you know. For burning draft files, um, you know th- that there's a story there that that is valuable to tell, and you know historically, yeah. a lot of people don't know anything about, and so um, you know, or or when I tell um, when I tell Fata Morgana, which is which is like a fable, it's, or like a folk and fairy tale, except that it's set in a much more ambiguous contemporary setting. But in the process of telling Fata Morgana with an audience, you know, uh, what I get to see is how they make they make choices about where we enter the story, and they make choices that lead to the end of the story, you know. And there is something inside that story that is so satisfying for them to enter into a, a magic realism, you know, to enter into the spell of language, and at the same time have it all be familiar. You know, that's very satisfying for me to to do that. Yeah, yeah. I imagine. I imagine. Um, you've met a ton of storytellers. Yes. <laughs> many, many storytellers. Um, yes. Many who are still alive and many who are not. Right, right. So, so the people that have passed, um, who do you think influenced you? Well, both Ken Fight and Ruvain Gold both influenced me. In, in very specific ways, and very in certain certain ways, the same way, you know what what Ken Fight did is Ken Fight said, you know, whatever story you want to tell, you know, here's how you engage that story, and here's you know, do the research around it. And Ruvain Gould, more than anything else, taught me how to be in the moment. I mean, as a storyteller, he was terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, he would laugh at jokes before he got to the punchline. He would weep on stage. You know, um, he he had this sort of high pitched voice. You know that, uh, and yet 
when he told a story, he was so much in that moment, in that story, the entire audience would be there with him, you know. Um, and it was a, to see it, to feel it, to hear it was, it was very, very potent and transformational. Other people who I think have been valuable is, um, interestingly enough, Spalding Gray was a great value to see perform multiple times. Um, even though, I mean, even he, on certain levels, he was uh, to see where the actor left, ended, and where the improvisation began. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of times, like when he's doing when he's doing swimming to Cambodia, a lot of times you'd say, "Oh, I don't see any improvisation." But if you saw him perform swimming to Cambodia several times, you could see from one performance to another how he would make adjustments, and that was quite valuable. Wow, you know, um, I saw Spalding Gray. One of the times I saw him do swimming to Cambodia, he was doing it in Minneapolis in this warehouse. Uh, they had set up this performance space in downtown Minneapolis, right? Third floor of this warehouse building. There are all these, you know, just crappy chairs, and the place was not air conditioned, Ooh. right? And it was summer, so when when we were, when he was talking about the heat. Everyone in the audience was in the heat. Right. We were in Cambodia. We were all sweating, and you know, and sweat is rolling down his face. And he, you know, he he then kind of goes off script, talking about the unrelenting pressure of heat, how it makes your you how you arrive at bad decisions because any decision <laughs> seems like to make sense then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you think he used the venue as to be part of the story in that particular In instance? that instance, I'm sure he used the venue as part of the story. How could you not respond to it? Well, I mean, yeah. how, did he pick that venue? Did he no, no, he did not pick that venue. Okay. You know, that venue, you know, no, that, I'm not quite sure. I'm pretty sure the walker picked that venue because they, they're the ones who brought him in. Okay. But, um, you know. Yeah, that's, that's crazy stuff. So what, um, who do you think... Who do you think you would like to sit down with? Living somebody living or dead that you'd love to sit down with that you haven't sat down with already? Well, and swap stories and engage with. Hmm. Well, I, I was. I also wanted to say something about Duncan Williamson, oh, who is yes. not not living. Right. You know, it's like I. I always felt like it didn't. He didn't have enough time with him. You know. Did you meet him? You no, know, I met him. Yeah, I okay. met him. Yeah, and Taffy Thomas. I met him too. Yeah, I'm head, I want to. Next time I'm over in the UK, I'm gonna. I'm doing an interview with her. And Taffy's interesting because a lot of he has a lot of labor stories. Labor stories. Labor, yeah, yeah. Union organizing, labor, really? pop, political stories. At least conversations he and I had uh, a number of years ago revolved around that. And I, he just, you know, huh? I don't know. I know it's not. He never. He doesn't tell them on stage. No. You know. No. No. <laughs> but he's got stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we all have, haven't we? Right. Somewhere. About yeah. This kind of stuff. So, um, but if I could, if I could, who who would I want to talk to? Who who's not amongst the living? And who I would like to meet? Um, hmm. Uh, in certain ways, I think that uh, I don't know. It's. I mean, there are all kinds of names that float to the surface, you know, it's like, oh, Homer, you know, well, or Shakespeare, or, you know, it's, but what do you, what, you know, what do you talk to them about, you know, it's like, right, right. Well, you know, 
do you, you know, you talked about Shakespeare at the end of his life, you know, when he feels like he's, you know, he's just cranking out one after another to make money, or, yeah. or you talk to Shakespeare early on and say, hey, buddy, you know, you've got a great future ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It's>, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I would take the posture of saying that I'm happy to, I'm happy to sit down with whoever I meet, living or dead. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <coughs> All right, kind of off off topic question. What would be your favorite breakfast? Where would you eat it, and who, with whom? So, um, in Minneapolis, there's a place called Al's for breakfast. Mm -hmm. It is built in what originally was a um, an alleyway, fourteen stools, one counter. Oh, wow. Okay, uh, I began going to breakfast there in 1968 when Al was there, the original Al, uh, gaunt old man, you know, with white hair, short order cook, and I've been going there for breakfast on and off ever since, and I know I've known each of the successive people who have owned it or run it. You know, generations of waiters have come and gone. And I still I love their blueberry walnut pancakes with a order of bacon on the side. It's just like oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> and coffee. And if you go in at six in the morning or you know during the week, you know you usually don't have to wait in line for a stool. Right. You know they are James Beard Award winner. <laughs> you know wow. so. You know, if you go on a weekend or if you go later in the day, it's, you know, you may have to stand in line. And, and the pressure, you're at, a, you're at eating at a stool and the pressure of people behind you waiting for us to sit down is like, I got to eat faster. Yeah, you know, yeah. As opposed to, you know, early morning, you early morning when it's like, well, here we are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Doug Grinna, who's the owner and one of the, you know, one of the cooks, you know, when he just would, you know, talk with you, you know, trade jokes with you, you know, it's great. That's mm. nice. And who would you who would you invite to have breakfast with you? Well, um, one of my one of my favorite people to have. I've got, been there with Kevin Kling a number of times. And okay. that, it's always that's always fun. It's yeah. always fun with Kevin. Um, the other person, though, I would I if I would like to take there. Um, <laughs> Is I you know it's the kind of place I think Barack Obama would do well. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, oh here, have some hash browns and you know, yeah. shoot the breeze. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that idea. I wouldn't mind having breakfast with him. He'd be an interesting guy. Yeah, there's very few politicians that I'd like to meet, but yeah, he's he's one I would like to meet. Well, Lauren, thanks very much indeed for your time. I okay. really appreciate it. Thanks for sitting in here and letting me run through a bunch of questions and. Okay, come up when you want. Happy to. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Should we go get some lunch now? A huge thank you to Lauren Namey for taking time out from the Sharing the Fire conference in Plymouth, March 2019. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Thanks to Ben Schultz, who provided the music for my podcast. Creating this show is very much a labour of love. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, www.simonbrooksstoryteller.com, or on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. 
A dollar a month, a couple of dollars a month, a single donation for a particular episode will all help me reach out further and create more of these conversations. If you can, I know you can, leave a review on Stitcher or wherever else you found this episode. It helps not just me, but it also helps others find this podcast and know what they're getting in for. Please jump onto the interwebs and find out more about my guests. Follow them and me if you want. All of the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I sit with them. Again, thanks for listening, thanks to Lauren, and thanks for being there. A special shout-out to Claire Miller, Chris Rydell, Harvey Helburn, Hope Lewis, Laura Packer, Merrick Bennett, Patricia Spaulding, that's Pat Spaulding to everyone else, Rachel and Harding for being my Patreons. I do greatly appreciate it. Again, thank you for listening and being there. I hope you join me for the next episode of Conversations with Storytellers when the guest will be... (laughs) You'll have to tune in to find out. Until next time, share one of your favourite tales. Bye.